This is Max Newsom. You're listening to Stuart Pink on Phoenix FM. It's Phoenix FM Drive and zooming on to the show. Very excited to say writer and director Max Newsom. Hello, Max. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. How are you? Yeah, great, actually. Um, you know, like everybody else, struggling through the, the end of COVID, but, but optimistic. Optimistic. Well, I like it. That's, that's a good way to be on this show. <laughs> Up to it. Uh, so describe the scene. Where, where are you zooming in from, Max? What's, what's occurring? Um, I've uh, actually just been in, in Cumbria for a week uh, in, in the Lake District. Uh, oh, lovely. Some, which has been absolutely fabulous. Um, and now I'm back in, in Brixton, uh, London, which is where I uh, am based for most of my film work. Obviously, Slightly less green. Very much so. It was a bit of a shock. <laughs> When I got back yesterday. Excellent. What was it like? I'm going to the lakes in a couple of weeks. Did you save the weather for me? Oh, yeah. Well, fabulous. I mean, it's a bit like Iceland, in fact, you know, where they say if you don't like the weather, come back in five minutes. Uh, <laughs> my best recommendation is you, you kind of get on a bit of higher ground and look out and see where the good weather is and drive in that direction. <laughs> yeah, go there. That's where you want to be. <laughs> So you're here, you mentioned Iceland. Uh, you've got a film coming out very soon. Um, Iceland is best. Um, exciting stuff. Yes, it is. Um, the whole film um, began not in Iceland because it was a country I'd never been to. And I'd been curious about it. But my curiosity, even though it was there, was quite limited because I, I didn't even, I knew what it looked like and where it was on the map and that we'd been fighting over cod in the past but apart from that I didn't know anything yeah. so at the time back in 2006 I was working as head of a development fund in Los Angeles which had really quite a large sum of money like 130 million pounds dollars rather to spend on films and my job was to sift through writers meet directors and try and make sense out of what it was they were proposing and in Hollywood there's always a mad rush almost like flies onto the windscreen of a car uh, to kind of splatter you with ideas. Yeah. And everybody's in a terrible hurry and it's completely exhausting working in that environment. And one of the ways I would relax was go to a video store, which was called Rocket Video um, in, in LA. And it was great because it had a sort of toy rocket outside that was about 10 feet tall, which immediately interested me. You know, oh, cool. Yeah. Exactly. Visually different. And um, I was uh, went inside and was just working my way through my usual racks of, I suppose they were in, international, what the Americans call international, but what we would call foreign film titles, but it also includes English films. And I had a stack of them and I noticed this really beautifully shaped pair of eyes looking at me from this kind of Charlie Brown type kiosk at the back of the shop. And she kept sort of noticing where it was I was moving up and down the racks and most other customers, of course, in the American film section. So I came and plonked the DVDs as they were then down on the desk and said, she looked at me and I thought, my goodness, she looks completely unlike I've ever seen anybody look with <laughs> her features. So I said boldly, what's your story? And she said, I'm from Iceland. And you could have knocked me over with a feather. I thought, Iceland? Oh, my God. And it was like a sort of open sesame <laughs> moment. And I yeah. said, so how did you get to a rocket video store in L.A.? And she said, well, <clears throat> it is owned by an Icelandic couple, but that's quite unusual in L.A. because there aren't there are only 320,000 Icelanders in Iceland. Wow, um, that few. And, you know, 200,000 are in the capital. And there have yeah. been fewer than a million Icelanders ever in the history of time, you know, in, in so we're talking about quite a rare occurrence. If you bump into one, it's almost like a David Attenborough moment. Yeah, so, the lesser spotted Icelandic. Person. That's right, exactly. <laughs> so she said, I left home when I was 17 and said that to my parents, I was going to go to live in America, in California, in fact, to become an artist. And I thought, well, that's amazing. You know, it's so young to know that and to come from Iceland. And she said, but they didn't really want me to go and my friends didn't want me to go. And I set off to the airport, but it took me three years to get to the airport. Um, oh. Because on the way, she fell in love with someone. And that, of course, changed her idea about what she was going to do and how she was going to do it. And he didn't want her to go. So I said, that's amazing. That sounds like a wonderful story. Can I interview you? 
And so over the next five mornings in the cafe behind the Rocket Video Store, I sat with my pen and paper and took down notes. And the story became more and more interesting. And I thought this would make a, a kind of almost, if you know, a Ken Loach sort of kitchen sink, gritty drama about how this young girl tried to, young woman tried to escape home and find yeah. her way. And because I was working in the film fund, I didn't have time to sort of get to writing it, but I felt increasingly I'd love to do this story and do something more organic because in America, it's very much a producer-led environment where you do a version of the story, they sell the script to an actor, say, that they propose it, pitch it to them, and the actor says yes, and the producer will come back to you the next day and say, we can get someone bigger. Yeah. And this process goes on. And so I had been working the script and had rewritten it five times in eight weeks and was getting a bit dizzy about the whole process and thought, well, what I'd really like to do is um, do something a bit more organic. And uh, so I came back to the UK and started writing and out tumbled something a bit like her. Alice in Wonderland sort of story, because I was having to guess what Iceland was like. I mean, I knew all the details, all the human details, but I'd never met any Icelander other than Siri, who was oh, wow. the young woman I'd met. So yeah. um, I kind of, I go very strongly on intuition. I think it's the answer to everything. And whether you're a filmmaker or not, um, I think your subconscious mind has all the answers and you've just got to listen. So outpoured this story and I kind of imagined that every day in Iceland was like Saturday morning. When I was a kid, nothing ever mattered on a Saturday morning except an adventure. You know, your bicycle, your pocket money, you went and bought the sweets and powered on sugar and chocolate. You shot off into the morning with your mates and had adventures. You know, you built dens, you threw stones into rivers, you know, you pretended to be soldiers, you fought battles. At least yeah. that's how mine childhood went exactly. and I just loved Saturday morning it was my favorite time of the week and years ago when I first started making films uh it was also like Saturday morning you know you'd set up the camera somewhere and no one was giving you permission to do it but you just did it anyway and it was like sort of sculpting out of time which is a title of a book by a famous Russian director called Tarkovsky and it's just like that you sculpt in time almost as if you're putting your hands into the clay and you make something that didn't exist from almost nothing in your imagination. Exactly yeah. that. So having imagined that Iceland was, that every day was like Saturday, I also sort of got the feeling that they were, it was almost like people living a life behind a thick pane of glass. Um, and it was almost like, because I wanted them to speak in English and because I don't understand the language or can't write it, and it's in any case, one of the most, very most difficult languages to learn in the world. I wanted the sound of the Icelandic accent, but in English. And since it was a story about a girl living in Iceland, I thought, well, she could pretend to her friends or say to her friends, you know, I need to practice my English. So that became the pretext for me being able to write it in English. And when I started to hear these voices, it was almost like little voices coming out of a fog on a Saturday morning. And so I just kept going writing in this way. But at the end of it, it was rather shocking almost because it didn't have... You know, it was almost like a fairy tale, almost like a children's picture book in my mind. And I was so shocked. I put it down and didn't do anything with it for a, a couple of years, uh, but eventually showed it to a Japanese colleague, although he grew up here um, in the UK. And he said, I really, really like this story. It's very unusual. So he and his partner, William uh, Randall Coth, sent me to Iceland and I went for 17 days and I just had the complete luxury of a Saturday morning that lasted for 17 days. And <laughs> I met up with a casting director um, and I in fact took Siri with me from California to give me some you know, basic signposts. And she introduced me to her family and said, look, I've got other filmmaking friends here. So oh, there's, wow. a very, there's a very big filmmaking community in Iceland and they've shot films like the Sands of Iwo Jima, Star Wars, sections from that the fast and furious but also of course game of thrones yeah surprising there. for such a small country and they've got so many big films that shot there it is it is and you know like everybody you meet like one girl we met who looked as though she was a model actually worked on a fishing boat out in the you know the dangerous <laughs> bouncy iceland and sea and also on a farm and also uh 
the farm was under the volcano that went up there, you know, it went off about it was seven years ago. And she also worked as a, a camera person on film production. <laughs> so everybody there does several jobs, but at least one of them Whoa. will be in be the film industry. And a film star. <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> potentially. So, and in fact, she's now studying film um, in Los Angeles at the best film school in America. So, you know, they do travel and they're ambitious. They're still Vikings, essentially. Yeah. So I got there and was introduced to a casting director called Vigfus. And he very generously said, I'll help you cast this film. And normally everything's very expensive in Iceland. I mean, it is the most expensive filming environment in the world you can possibly be in. But he said, over the price of a cappuccino, which is all it cost me, he said, I will get for you some of the most interesting young actors in Iceland to be the part of Siri, uh, who I'd called now Sigur in my story. Um, and so I got in the car and drove off just thinking, well, while he's looking, where do I find the ideal location? And firstly, I went to the south and east to a place called Vik, which is a very beautiful small town with fabulous beef stew, um, which is very important, and endless hills flowing out beyond it, you know, in the light. Wow, yeah. Dark, light, dark. And it's out beautiful. that way that they've filmed James Bond. They've done various movies out there, but it's also oh. too far away from... You need a helicopter to get there if there's going to be a, a disaster. Yeah. And that immediately makes your film, you know, very, very expensive. So it I cost on turned the insurance. The, exactly. So I turned yeah. the car around and drove up to the northwest to a peninsula called the Snyfall's Nest. Now that is um, a bit, it looks a bit like Brittany on the map, that bit in northwestern France. And it sticks out into the North Sea up there. And the weather is astonishing. You know, you can go from snowstorm to bright blue skies and sunshine to heavy rain quite literally in a 10 minute period or 15 minute period and, <laughs> the, and the road runs around the coast like a ribbon uh, slightly sinking and rising into the volcanic crust and if you get out of your car and step into it actually your shoe gets swallowed in the stuff and so the edge of the road is sort of like a ribbon it sort of ripples so you have to pay great attention not to go too far to the side of the road. And you end up having to drive down the middle of the road, obviously looking yeah, ahead of you. Yeah, hoping no one else is doing it. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But you're mesmerised by all these volcanoes, which are, of course, extinct, or at least not working now. But they've all got snow on the top at that time of year when I went, which was sort of March, April time. Sounds and, amazing. And you sort of get seduced by it. It becomes a sort of, um, it's like going into limbo. You sort of think this isn't like, anywhere else on the planet. Now, they actually did their testing of the Mars, of the moon lunar vehicle for the first space landing on the moon in Iceland, because it has <laughs> the landscape most like it. Basically the same, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> like so, so, but when you're there, you're, you're going along. And in fact, everybody in Iceland, a bit like in Ireland, who believe, you know, in, 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 in little people, in Iceland, they have, the translation is the little people, and they believe there are people there sort of watching you from behind rocks. And you think, nonsense, this is just obviously delusional, too much of the local uh, you know, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but there I was, driving along one morning at about 9.30 on a cold and dark phase of their weather, and suddenly all the hair stood up on the back of my neck. And it was as if... I was being watched not by one set of eyes, but by a thousand sets of eyes. And oh, then all the, the blood rushed. The and that was people were watching. Exactly. And that was like <laughs> the most extraordinary thing because I hadn't premeditated this at all. And I've never had an experience of that, although I have certainly seen ghosts and experienced ghostly, you know, I'm quite open to that. Yeah. But um, this was entirely new. And from that wow. moment onwards, I took it seriously. And I think you got to kind of respect a landscape, you know, you sort of let it be your guide. And so about two hours later, I ended up in a village called Arnastapi, which is on the southern coast of this peninsula called the Snifelsness. And as soon as I arrived, it was as if my stomach sort of fell through my shoes. And I thought, this is it. This is where my character lives. So it's a very beautiful fishing village and looks out on the ocean and you can see successive headlands going back down the coast to uh, uh, Reykjavik, the capital, although you can't quite see it in the mist and the distance, but it's there. 
and it just was utterly beautiful. And I thought, right, I found the location. And I zoomed back to uh, Reykjavik and started to audition the actresses. And one in particular delivered the lines so beautifully in her Icelandic accent that I thought, this is astonishing. I've obviously found the right actress. And although there were three or four others who I thought could have played the role really interestingly, it was really that voice I heard that had almost come from my head. And I was suddenly you know, in the right place to make the film. So I came back to the UK and said, look, we found the actress, we found the location, we've begun to find some people who can help us make the film. I think it does work. My script does work. There somehow magically it snapped into place like a piece of Lego, or at least seems like to be part of the same dream. It's yeah. as if my dream was now projected on the screen and it was real. It's the little people so, influencing it. Well, maybe. And yeah. And <laughs> so we, we decided the thing to do was to shoot a mood board, which is something that some filmmakers do. I mean, I like to do it whenever I can. And it meant basically going back to Iceland, doing a screen test of the actress and some of the others who had done really, really well in the location that we'd chosen. Ideally in the cold winter conditions, because we wanted snow and we needed to know if the kit worked and if they worked and if we could get a crew together who could bear the circum, you know, the winter yeah, conditions. Quite extreme weather um, capable people have been out. <laughs> exactly. They call it windy. The cold. <laughs> exactly. They call it windy land rather than Iceland. Um, and the and with the day we arrived for the mood board, it was Force 12. And I remember that one of the line producer who's called Helga, who also from Iceland, was blown backwards down the road for about 20 metres, standing on her two feet on the ice and then pushed backwards into a ditch. And, <laughs> and my, my cameraman thought this was hysterically funny until he too was blown over trying to get her out of the ditch. So now that's what it's like. And it's minus 20 degrees centigrade in a force 12 wind. So Whoa, you know, that's next you, level, isn't it? It is next level. But we just were blown away and we actually ended up shooting uh, a, a short sequence with the actress who's called Kristen Sofostotir against a petrol pump and she was wearing a yellow jumper and the petrol pump was partly yellow and the sky behind her was blue and the mountain, the volcano was white. And it was like an MGM musical. It was so beautiful. <laughs> and I thought wow. this will sell the film. And so it proved to be. We shot it on film stock, which is quite unusual in the modern age. Most films are shot in digital now and everything is recorded to you know, a storage card and then processed by all the usual electronics. Uh, processes to give you your image mm. but film is almost like a once only recording of the light as it is yeah. and the most beautiful thing about Iceland apart from the volcanoes and the quiet and the little people is the light so I wanted that and uh, we to shoot the mood board we'd come back to Panavision uh, which is you know a fabulous uh, facility for renting lenses and cameras and I spent the day with my DP looking at different lenses and I was shown a million pounds worth of lenses on a tray. And my DP, who's director of photography said, look, this is your choice. Uh, we've got the best lenses in the country here, have a go. And so you look through them at somebody sitting on a stool beneath ugly fluorescent light. You think, is this gonna tell <laughs> my story? In the yeah, exactly. Beautiful location, yeah. And I shook my head sadly after each set was shown to me and said, no, no. No, and they were from each decade, from the 1950s through to the current era. And uh, Lee Mackey, who is uh, one of the people who runs Panavision in the UK, came into the room just by chance that moment and said, well, I do have some other lenses under some tarpaulin somewhere in a back room on a metal shelf. Would you like to see them? <laughs> Hidden in the Exactly. The store. And, my, and my little... The voice in me that usually is my guide said, perhaps aided by the little people, said, follow him. So we went through, he lifted up the tarpaulin, and then from that moment onwards, I was absolutely sure these were the lenses. And he took them through and said, well, these are a bit unusual. They're antique lenses that have been rehoused in a new housing that we've had to make specifically for these lenses. So some of them are Japanese, and they're decades old, and some of them are British lens called a Cook which has got an E on the end, which is a fabulous brand. Um, and together they make this thing called an anamorphic image, which is like a letterbox shape. And it gives the face really beautiful and modeling and makes it look more 3D. 
And so I put it on, they put it on the front of the camera and I looked at the camera system under the ugly fluorescent lighting and I said, the F word. And then I said, I'm in love. Not so much okay. with the camera system, but with the, uh, the just the way it molded the light. And I said, these are the lenses we're gonna use. And my DP looked tragic. And he said, but these are very expensive, Max. And Lee said, yes, and they're the only set on the planet. Wow, no pressure. Uh, <laughs> so after that, um, my cameraman, uh, Dan Kuro Shimner, who was the Japanese colleague who'd sent me to Iceland, took me to other facilities and other lenses and said, now, Max, would you not rather try these? Always with the cost of the ones I had chosen in mind. And I said, no, 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 yeah. no. And eventually, you know, when we came to shoot the film, the lenses had been rented out to someone else. So I folded my arms, sat down on the ground more or less, and said, I'm not shooting the film unless <laughs> we have those lenses. And Dan started to sweat profusely. And he went back to Lee and said, look, I've got a problem. My director won't shoot the film unless we can have those lenses. And we'd shot this mood board on that set. And he said, and Lee said, well, show me the mood board again. So he showed it to him. And he said, right, you can have the lenses. I'll talk the production that has them out of having them because they're just their backup lenses, fortunately, because you'll make a much better use of them than, than they will. So impressed so, with how it looked. Yeah, exactly. So that <laughs> is the importance of shooting a mood board. And, you know, it helped us choose the actress and it helped us decide it was the right location and that, you know, there's a way of making a film there even in the cold. And, and really with that confidence, we went forwards to, you know, raise the money and, and shoot the film in Iceland itself. That's interesting. So, I mean, I've never done this, but by shooting a mood board, do you think that was, is that something that often gets skipped or is something you, you don't put so much effort into when you're putting the things together? Yes, I, I think you're absolutely right, Stuart. The, I mean, it's expensive. I mean, I think I can say with that, you know, that sort of thing costs a little under £50,000. You know, it's it's a very expensive operation and you need to have that cash. It's all risk capital at that stage. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that we were doing was shooting with the frontline cast being authentically Icelandic and teenagers. So by definition, none of them are famous. You know, they have acting experience because of, you know, the, the, the industry that they have within Iceland but not appearing in international titles. And most films are funded purely upon having a, a star name in the big name. World. Yeah. And it, so you are going around the trees, quite a long way around the trees, if you go the way that we chose to go. But I wanted Iceland to be the star of the movie. And I, if you haven't been like me to Iceland, you can't possibly imagine it really. So I think for us, you know, the mood board was really important, but also it sets the template and you'll be surprised how few people in the film industry actually have a visual imagination. You know, they'll sort of like show me something and I'll tell you whether I like it or not. Well, what they usually mean by that is the film and of course the film itself, but that's way down the line. So shooting the mood board allows you to get everybody thinking about your movie, the way you see it um, at a very early stage. And so I find that really helpful. That's fascinating. Yeah. So you got the lenses, uh, that, that, that worked out well. Uh, and then, then just a small task of, of getting everyone there and, and doing it all in, yes, in that, pretty extreme conditions. Yes, that's right. Exactly. I mean, when you're financing an independent movie and an independent movie means one that's not financed by a Hollywood studio, you're basically looking for money, which is either provided by tax credit, which is like a cashback thing, which most regions in the world offer, and it's usually about 20 or 25%. So of all the money you spend there, you'll get back 25% in due course. And you can factor that through a loan or through a bank. And that becomes very necessary and important to financing a film. And in studio films use the same facility as well. But um, for independent films, it's absolutely vital. Most other money comes from private individuals who are putting in what's called the equity you know, and had you a famous person in a starring role, you would also possibly get a small advance. So it's that sort of way, plus sometimes investment from a, a, a specialist group, which will also help you, say, write 
pay for the music for the film and the sound and do the editing and so on and so forth. So you have to pull together all these pieces of the puzzle that don't really want to come together. And it's almost like you have to stand on one piece with one foot, another piece with another foot. You have to use your elbow on another one, put your chin yeah. on another one. And they're all got calls upon them to finance other films. So even when you've got them in the right place, you can't guarantee they're still going to be there in a few days, weeks or months time. Um, and one of the strategies we adopted was, okay, so we'll get in some American cast in the secondary roles and maybe that will help us finance the film. So we went to, I went to Los Angeles from Iceland uh, and auditioned actors. Uh, and we had something like 8,000 people apply for the roles that we were auditioning for. Wow, uh, and this is through the casting director called Lisa Hamill, who is an experienced independent movie casting director. And she's also done you know, bigger budget films, but she very kindly threw herself at putting this film out there. And some of the people were very famous. They're very much A-listers who wanted to be in it. But the way it works in, the, in LA is that you can't talk to or audition anybody really famous. They won't do it. You just have to make... Um, you have to make an offer and um, they will then agree to do it or not based upon the size of the offer and perhaps they're having read the script. So you don't know if you would get on with them. That's amazing. So you'd never even met them before you've offered no, them the gig. No, exactly. So it's, it's unfortunate the way that has happened and it didn't used yeah. to be like that. Back in the early 80s, you could, not that I was making films then, but you could still meet the most famous film stars in the world, you could actually meet Robert Redford and talk to him about your movie. Yeah. And I think it's a great pity that doesn't happen because it, what it does is it pushes the talent away from you and puts the agents and the managers between them and you, between you and them. And it's the single problem, biggest problem I think facing the film industry now is that filmmakers can't get to excite the cast directly. Yeah must take the excitement and the, the creativity away from the actors. They can't... Well, I, th I think it's hard for them to judge because obviously yeah. there are hundreds of filmmakers like me who want their time and it's very reasonable and proper that there is a filter between them and, you know, desperate filmmakers who want them in their films. But I think at the same time, there is a message that you may have in your story or the way you want to shoot it, which would connect with them very personally. And there are many examples of, you know, careers being arrived. John revived John Travolta in Pulp Fiction. You know, Quentin went after him and was able to persuade him to be in the movie. In Lost in Translation, Bill Murray, you know, who's a difficult man to reach, was reached by Sofia Coppola, who says, you know, you must be in my film because I wrote it with you in mind. So I think there are gifts that filmmakers can give to actors, but that's not always what agents think of first. They tend to think of their 10% cut above them all else so um it is a big problem yeah um difficult to navigate but, but anyway so there's however a whole range of actors in america who are prepared to come and talk to you even if they're not prepared to read the script in a sort of formal audition way so they'll chat to you it's um you'll have a conversation with them it lasts an hour and i was thrilled that wonderful actors uh who fell into that category were happy to come and talk to me about the film and i think it was partly because it was Iceland and they were curious themselves and perhaps had heard good things about it. But also the script was slightly unusual. It was funny. It was uh, about a story that, in fact, lots of them had lived in their own lives, especially the actresses, for example, had left other countries or other parts of America and taken a big chance and gone to L.A., very often aged 17, 16, sometimes even younger. So without my realising it, the story that I hoped was universal was very particular to many actors in America. Um, so they all came and spoke very enthusiastically about how the story matched their own experience of life. Yeah. Um, and one person uh, who did come was Judd Nelson, who was in The Breakfast Club and St Elmo's Fire very famously in the 80s. And he was so beautifully prepared. He'd read the script. He remembered almost all the lines, he must have a photographic memory almost and could analyze the script, break it down. And so it was almost like talking to the ideal script development person 
but in this case, also an actor and also you know, a well-known actor. And so at the end of the conversation, I thought, well, if he would like to be in my film, I would love to have them. And he plays the role of Mr. Songfist, who is a poetry teacher who is important in the journey that our, our, our character makes. So, and then we also met Tom Madden, who is done quite a lot of TV, the screen, 13 Reasons Why, and is a bit of a heartthrob in America, very good looking, but also was desperate to come to Iceland and wanted to do an indie film and loved the idea of doing one shot on film stock, which is a way of connecting for lots of young actors with you know, the classic performances and actors of the past, yeah. you know, whether they be James Dean or Marlon Brando or you know, Robert Redford. That's or, how they um, did it. Robert Downey Jr. They all started out on film stock and it's a different rhythm. You know, it means you have to be on form immediately and yeah. uh, the camera moves around the set more slowly. So you have, eats up more time. You have fewer chances to get it right. But when you do get it right, it kind of preserves that moment beautifully in a way in which uh, I would argue digital often doesn't just because uh, people are more, you have more chances to get it right, which doesn't always mean you will get it right. And, it's almost a bit and, more magical to have that. Yes, you know. I mean, I, it's, it's obviously a prejudice. I mean, people have made wonderful films, very successful films, uh, not on digital. But I remember the year we went out to Iceland, I think there was, of all the nominations for Best Cinematography that year at the Oscars, all but one were films that were shot on film stock. So that gives you an idea relatively how beautiful film stock is relative to the other options. And whilst the technology is evolving, all the time in digital. I also like the discipline it imposes on everybody because they do have to be more focused. So, so yeah, so I came back from America with a cast uh, and also we got Helena Matson, who uh, has been in a number of, uh, you know, she's been in uh, quite a lot of TV, but also films, uh, quite big American movies. And she came along and spoke to us, I think because she was Swedish and had made this journey from being a 17 year old to LA, somewhat against the wishes of her family in just the same way as my Icelandic uh, figure had made the journey from yeah, Iceland. Yeah, connect to the main, main character and the, and the exactly. story. Exactly. So we came back and we found a little to our surprise that still nobody really wanted to invest in our film. We had the promise of a tax credit is mentioned. We also had some investment from a couple who had come to a screening we'd done of the move board, some investors and producers, and had said rather very wonderfully that they were prepared to invest some money and rang us up the next day to say so. So we, we had that banked, as it were, but we were still a long way short of being able to complete even the first stage of a film production, which is called pre-production, where you recce all the locations and decide how you're going to decorate them and decide what costumes people are going to wear and you rehearse the actors and recruit all the remaining crew. Um, and as time went on, the date on the calendar, the latest date by which we could start filming was really realistically early November. You know, we could shoot all of November, but the daylight hours in Iceland are only four and a half hours of daylight at the beginning of that month. And by the end of November, they're like three and a half hours. And not all of those hours wow. are bright lights. Now that includes dawn and dusk. Yeah. So, and of course the weather gets worse, the snowstorms get worse, the wind gets stronger. So that date was creeping ominously closer. And we needed probably two or three weeks pre-production if we were gonna make it happen. So we needed the money in place. And Dan and I were so keen to get this film done, but also very aware that it might not be. And it's a higher wire act when you're trying to make a film because it's almost like you have to change the world to allow your film to be made. And as yep. a way to... Yeah, so many obstacles in the way and so much to, to line up just right. Exactly. A mate of mine, James Samuel, who's just directed an enormously big budget film called The Harder They Fall, which is coming out uh, later this, this year, said to me just last week, you know, it's a minor miracle that any film gets made. So it's almost like you have to sort of tear a sheet like a, a, a canvas cloth and climb through it, dragging your cameras, your film crew, you know, and all the sandwiches you're going to eat and all the vehicles you're going to need <laughs> to make it. 
and burst through to this other world behind that doesn't really want you. Yeah. Um, so at a certain point, Dan just rang me up and said, I booked the tickets, we're going back to Iceland. And we had a crew sort of beginning to form and stand by, but they all needed to know whether they were going to work or not, or whether they should you know, sign up for another production. So we went over and rented an Airbnb and within, I think 48 hours, we had 14 people there started already on pre-production and we didn't have a cent in the bank, not actually at that stage. Wow, um, that must have been slightly nerve-wracking. That was the most nerve-wracking thing I've yeah. ever done in my life. Very rock and roll and completely typical, sadly, of what it sort of takes and what you might have, the risks you have to run in making an independent film. But three days later, we had £15,000 in the bank, which was enough to pay for the first set of bills. Another week later, we had £150,000 in the bank, which was enough to get to the end of pre-production, but wasn't enough to actually shoot the film. So whilst we could look relaxed to everybody around us, inside, we were churning up and there was a moment when I almost had a heart attack in the car park of a supermarket with Dan. It wasn't actually a heart attack. And obviously I apologize to those people who have genuinely gone through it, but I did feel as though that was a possibility because I just yeah. didn't know whether we could bring the, the last stress. money on board. And Will, who was working away like a Trojan back in London, uh, back in Weybridge, in fact, um, managed to pull together the financing at the last possible moments, you know, heroically. And um, we were able to set off the following Monday morning to drive up to the Northwest, um, only to find that the camera kit was still in a van broken down on the way to Heathrow Airport. No. <laughs> so you're everybody there, apart from everybody the camera there, kit. Everybody there, apart from the camera kit. So we had to shoot the first day with the crew having been up since two in the morning to configure the lenses onto the cameras. You know, It's a very... <laughs> complex process so there we were we were in the northwest uh in the snipers there's in snowstorm suffering power outages uh sometimes a snowstorm would come in you know with 70 mile an hour winds and you'd have to shut down the set you drive to a nearby cafe well, i say nearby it might be five miles away um and you'd hide there while the snowstorm blew over then by the time you finish your soup it's a blue sky again so you jump back, back in the vehicle, back in again. race back, and you know you end up with mallets and chisels chipping ice off the top of a lighthouse as we did to shoot the next scene. You know, laughing basically because it's so ridiculous, yeah. it's so surreal to have this this kind of weather. But it means everybody's on form. Nobody's ever sort of switched off, and everybody's working at the peak of their powers. It must uh, be um, when you're in that situation as someone who doesn't live there. Uh, do the locals kind of? Look at you and think you're mad trying to do this. This is how can you do this in the middle of a, all this I, going on? Or do they take it in their stride more like this happens all the time? Well, I think I think I think you put your finger on something rather nice. And I did say at the time that you know, in November, even the Icelanders are home are at home wrapping up their Christmas presents. Yeah, you know, they do know better. <laughs> and there was one day we were listening to the weather forecast, and they said, if you are out on the road today, you are insane. Because <laughs> uh, there's a thing called a bullet wind that comes. It's 120 miles an hour. It comes out of the mountains and it hits the side of your car and flips you over. And I've seen two cars completely upside down just next to the road. So I know it happens. Wow. Uh, luckily, nobody suffered any of that. We had one car that was pushed into a ditch that, a few days after we finished filming. But whilst we were doing it, we managed to sort of avoid all of that. So, yeah, and as you say, the locals, well, the villages are usually four people all from the same family. No, the nearest cafe was 35 miles away that had proper accommodation. And fortunately, in Arnestapi, between the mood board and when we came to shoot the film, someone actually built a very nice hotel. I mean, it's, I say they're like boxes, uh, which are weatherproofed and warm and quiet. And there's like a sort of canteen where you can eat. So somehow it almost become like Pinewood Studios in this village. Yeah. Oh, cool. <laughs> but otherwise we'd have been really stuffed, you know, Reykjavik's three hours away. We had to drive the film that we'd shot to Reykjavik through the snow every day. Uh, and then it would be put on an aeroplane and flown back to the UK to be developed in a film lab called the Film Lab, which was a wonderful lab uh, on the west of London. And uh, then we would see digitally the 
rushes beamed back to us, but it was a partly a physical process. And so you are isolated and you do have to bear all this in mind. But kind of sounds like you couldn't have picked a more complicated, difficult. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. I, mean, I think, you know, with hindsight, um, we could have shot it <laughs> probably a month earlier and still had some snow and had a bit more daylight. But as I said, to, kind of it, to win it, you've got to be in it. And, and I guess the, the, the bonus is you'd have such the most amazing locations for, for filming this. Yes, you do. Hard, I mean, it's, it's actually character. It is another character in the story, and the film certainly uh, carries it through. And, um, you know, you on an independent movie, you never have enough money, therefore you never have enough time. So you're constantly having to cut corners. And also my cast, you know, got so cold that sometimes their jaws would barely move. And they have to wear clothes that make it look as though it's a slightly different time of the year. Because um, if they're so wrapped up in their coats, you wouldn't be able to see them properly. <laughs> so they're sitting in these very, very cold circumstances and they had to be warmed up with hair dryers, you know, and they had to be... Uh, <laughs> there are some shots wow. in the making of where they're sort of in blankets, towels, you know, coats. And in fact, there was a company called 66 Degrees North, which is an Icelandic coat company and they make wonderful down clothing and they gave us sort of 10 coats to wear and that basically made the film possible because yeah. without it we'd have frozen to death and um so you've just got to all the time seize the moment and that essentially is what filmmaking is like so it's just like a, a sort of hyper version of filmmaking and uh, yeah, I grew up admiring something called the French New Wave which was something that happened in the beginning of the 1960s with Jean-Luc Godard and Francois Truffaut and others. And they were all about sort of stealing moments from Paris when you didn't have permission, you know, from shooting films where you don't have enough lights and you have to bounce the sunlight off a mirror. Yeah. You know, we were having to improvise working in with the similar elements. ways, working with the elements. That's right. So I, for me, it was very exhilarating. I, mean, I did have to rewrite the script every single day, every single night, and sometimes before, you know, 30 seconds before the scene was shot because the weather would make it impossible. It was too cold to try for a humorous interplay between four characters delivering lines in their second language in a balanced, nuanced way, you know, out in the open. So Fascinating. I hope I never have to do that again, but at least I know I can do it. <laughs> I was say, it must be have done. been a real challenge, but at the same time, having spent time doing what you were doing in, in LA uh, and feeling frustrated with, with things like having to not speak to an actor because you've got to go through the agent. Yes. In some ways, this is the complete polar opposite to be thinking on the fly and, and rewriting 30 seconds before a shot. And Yes, and, 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 and thank you for kind of drawing that that together because that's exactly what kind of provided that sort of explosive force. I, I don't want to be in a world where you're talking to people's representatives all the time or begging people's representatives to let you talk to their talent. You know, it's much better to have people who are on your project who have already been sold by the idea. You know, that basically they want to be nice and they want to come on an adventure. And in fact, Judd, Nelson was kind enough to say afterwards that, you know, that this was an adventure that he felt he couldn't miss. He had to be on it. Yeah. Um, and there's always that chance to talk your talent into that. But as I say, you don't always get the privilege to do that. So, yes, it was wonderful. And having been in the Northwest for about 10, 12 days, we then came back to Reykjavik, which in itself is a fascinating capital. Uh, you know, it's like a very large fishing town that's somehow become a capital city. And there's quite a lot of new building and new roads, but essentially the core of it is a few streets, some old fishing sheds uh, with beautiful warm cafes where the food is amazing. And the bread in Iceland is the best bread I've ever had anywhere. It's astonishing. Oh, wow. And the seafood, which I've never been very certain of, was beyond wonderful you know it is absolutely extraordinary and you feel they were absolutely right to fight the cod wars to keep people out yeah. stealing their fish because it is quite wonderful um and once you're there and once you've sort of been drawn into the icelandic world of warmer spaces and food you start to meet icelandic people which you know i we didn't meet in the northwest on a whole because we were apart from one wonderful uh, cafe a place called we would say Vegamot, but they say Vegamot, um, 
where the Icelandic people really looked after us really in a very lovely way. But it's only in Reykjavik that you're likely to bump into a lot of Icelandic people because that's where they essentially all live. Um, and you've got to sort of film in the city, you know, with aeroplanes and traffic noises. But again, because Iceland is even in Reykjavik, Saturday every day, there are moments where there is nobody. And uh, so we finished up the production exhausted, I think very tired by the, you know, the physical circumstances, but uh, a German director mate who turned up at the beginning and then at the end of the film said, this is amazing. He said, I've never been on a film set where people are working as hard on the last day as they were on the first. Yeah. So, so I think again, Everyone's I think the, the crew invested. were enthused. That's right. They become invested in it. And I think they were, aware that what we were trying to do was slightly unusual, which was try and make a sort of a, a fairy tale out of this environment. And I feel like the film, means... from what you've told me in the in the build up yes. to it, sounds as if it was being led, uh, almost becoming its own fairy tale by you you've getting the, the right lenses and that sort of showed themselves to you the locations and how you were led to them. Um then it's become its own its own battle to to get it done and get over the line. Yes, absolutely. And it was, you know, later on, um, when we were doing the post-production, um, I was thrown back into that world because I found I was really interested in sound production. And when you get all the sounds that have been recorded on set, you often discover that you need more. So the, the guys who work for us on the sound come from a company called Art for Noise and Nick Baldock and his assistant went back to Iceland with microphones of different varieties and stuck them under cars and drove them over icy roads. They got different gradients of wind, different wind strengths and you no know, bouncing off the sea. They listened to the sound of surf being blown up on the gravel. You know, they went to the lighthouse at which we filmed and got the sound of the wind whipping around that. Wow. You know, they got local bird sounds and they came back saying, oh my goodness, what a privilege, you know, to have gone to this place to be able to collect this sound. So they brought it back. And normally a director, even if he is allowed or is interested, would only turn up for the final mix where all the sounds which have been layered are then mixed together to get the single track that, you know, that becomes, it's not quite a single track, but there's the final mix of all this. But I was there for the pre-mix and the pre-pre-mix where I wanted to, make decisions about which footfall on which bit of crunchy ice was included rather than not. <laughs> and well. uh, so it's very detailed and it was very easy to do in a way because you had such a strong memory of being in that sound world of Iceland where everything is utterly quiet. I promise you, it is the quietest place you will ever go unless you go to Namibia. But I mean, it is extraordinary. And um, I also found that the composer we worked with was a man called Walter Mayer, who's a fabulous Austrian composer, who's wonderful to work with, because although I don't know very much about music, I have played various musical instruments and like music, and in a fantasy world, in another life, I would have been good on the guitar or a composer. Yeah. And that's always a danger for someone like Walter, because it often means the director interferes. And yeah, that's, exactly that's his the, patch. Yes, his patch. So <laughs> I said to him, look, I don't know how to talk about music, except... I do know that there are the little people in Iceland and I can imagine that they would be under the level of the lens where you can't see them because they're so short, but with their own instruments, like a, a clarinet that's a bit out of tune and maybe a violin, maybe a euphonium or, uh, or, or, or even some sort of weird electronic device. <laughs> and they'd be somehow... Exactly, they'd be walking around with Sigur the central character of the story, sort of playing an accompaniment, almost like people used to play an orchestra to a silent movie. And his Walter's eyes lit up. And he has an assistant <laughs> called Veronica Harnell, who's also Austrian, who plays the clarinet and can sing. And so they went away and built a score based on that idea that it's the little people. So we had a clarinet that was slightly out of tune. And when eventually we got into one of George Martin's of the Beatles, old studios called Eagle Sounds in London, where they record still on the old two-inch magnetic tape. So you get a very warm, rich sound. We had cool. a string section or part of that from the Royal Philharmonic. And they came along and they said, we're not happy playing against a clarinet that's out of tune. And I said, that's <laughs> intentionally so. And bravely they went on and contributed a wonderful 
uh, contribution to the score because we wanted an orchestral sound, almost like Iceland breathing and talking to Sigur. Yeah. So it's almost like the, the voices of the little people and the mountains almost talking to her, prompting her to keep going. Um, and that was a very wonderful experience. And I didn't know when I was in Iceland that we would be able to do this. I didn't certainly didn't know when I bumped into Siri in Rocket Video in Iceland, in Los Angeles, you know, many years before that this is where we would end up. But I think that's the beauty of making a film is if you go into it, like with an open dare to the universe and say, go on, give me the best that you can give me and I'll give you in exchange the best I can offer. You get this wonderful kind of contract or deal and it draws in other people. You know, and I had that experience uh, years before when making a film called Plunge, when Kate Winslet, who just finished Titanic, heard about the film and said, I need to be on your film. Can I be in it? Um, and that's another story, and hopefully I'll get to tell it another time when, when we, in fact, we complete that film, which bizarrely never did get completed. We hope to finish it next year. Still to come. Um, still to come. But it's still part be- of the, it's still the, part of the same thing is that if you can kind of encapsulate this experiment in one funding cycle, you know, so that you do have enough money to finish the film, um, the universe kind of opens up for a while. Now, Bruce Robinson, who famously made a film called With Nell and I, and also wrote a film called The Killing Fields, a very wonderful filmmaker, uh, said at a certain point in every film production, your luck runs out, you know, and that gap in a canvas, I talked about pushing all that equipment and all those people through, eventually sort of closes up of its own accord. And so you've only got a limited amount of time to do this, but whilst that is open, the most magical things can, and I find do happen, and for me, it's the most important thing about filmmaking, however grand it is, however famous the participants are, however much money is being involved, you always need to sort of create a space in which this magic can happen. It's so fascinating to hear you talk about it in that way, because you feel like you watch these films as a as a, just someone going to the cinema and go, oh, I'm going to watch, I'll watch that. Uh, you have no idea it takes that, that much for someone's life and that much of... That much time, so many people putting so much into it to, to get it to the screen. I think I think that's right. And it's one of the things I like to tell particularly new actors is that, that, that they're obviously very nervous about appearing in front of the camera. And it is sometimes the case that very famous actors, not we didn't have this problem, but on other projects I've heard stories about, have come to and rather imagine this is all for their benefit. And what it's important to understand is that now, this is ultimately and originally about Siri Jons, the Jonsdottir, who is the person who inspired the story. It's her life. Yeah. And it was a very painful, poignant experience for her. And that it was me hearing about it and thinking, but this was just like me leaving home and still trying to sort of come to terms with how to be the best version of myself, you know, how to be a, the best filmmaker, how to be, you know, a good human being. You know, all these questions are with one, all one's life. And so that process of leaving home is like a sort of birthing process in very slow motion. And that's true for the people who are drawn to the film as well. And as you, you know, as we, we've just discussed, you know, making a film takes time and money isn't always there, even when the idea is wonderful. You know, you do have to stretch yourself infinitely. And, you know, during the shooting of the film, I often felt I was hanging on by my fingernails or actually sliding down you know, a glass icy pane. <laughs> Being blown down the road, literally. That's right, but literally backwards. blown down the road. That's right, <laughs> backwards, exactly. But you you do it because of an act of faith in the end. And I think that's what, this act of faith is what unifies everybody. And if, if everybody does it in good faith, then you have a chance of making a film which the audience must instinctively understands is coming from a good place. And, you know, a film like ours comes with flaws and it comes with faults and they're unavoidable given the production circumstances. And I remember sitting with Dan Kura watching uh, Lady Bird, which is a wonderful film, has a wonderful yeah. performance by uh, Saoirse Ronan, who is, you know, one of my absolutely famous, most favourite actresses and would love to work with her one day, if only I could get past the agent. Um, <laughs> one day. One day. One day. Um, and uh, Dan said, this film cost $10 million. And I thought, oh, my goodness, had we had 
anything like that standard our film you know we would have been able to do everything perfectly but life isn't like that life never gives you the optimal it's always about an experiment in the suboptimal yeah um but if you could do it with that good faith i was talking about and with that energy that collective energy you can still sort of find diamonds in the rough and there will be some rough in your film just like there is in the first albums you know very often one's favorite band produces a first album which has absolute diamonds and stuff also in it which is pretty unfinished and quite raw but i think it's that balance of the two that makes for something very special and gives it a sort of authenticity and i think the audience instinctively knows that this is coming from a long way off brought to you at the end of a long journey and it's like someone holding up something really precious having crossed the desert uh, and i think that's you know what it's kind of your duty to be faithful and honest about that as a as a as a creator of some sort you come you collapse you hold it up and even if you fall face down in the sand afterwards <laughs> that's it least, that's it that's it that's it well, <laughs> even, if it's not even if it's not the masterpiece at least you know with humility you offer it up and say look life is a journey this was a journey especially and you know here it is this is what it is Speaking so, of life being a journey, uh, the person who inspired the film, Siri, uh, yes. has, she, has she been to, has she had the chance to see it yet? What, what, what did she make of it? Yes. Well, I mean, she actually came back to Iceland while we were shooting the film uh, in the sort of, uh, not quite from the beginning, but most of it. And I think to begin with, she was a bit bewildered because she read the script quite late on in the process. So I think I wanted her not to focus on the way I had retold her story, because of course it's partly retold through my experience as well. Yeah, um, it opens up to, to other people. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And, and the other actors bring their own, as we were discussing earlier, bring their mm. own experience. You know, Tom Madden brought his own experience to the role of Nikki, who is the boyfriend in the story. Just as Kristen, uh, even though she's just starting out in her adult life, you know, brought her experience of wanting to experience other parts of the world than Reykjavik to the story. So I think Siri initially was almost a bit shocked at how different it was, but then she found it amusing. And then I heard us laughing one day and saying, oh, well, it's gone through Max, you know, the story. It's now come out as a filter <laughs> of something else. Yeah. And yet one day when we were shooting a scene with a grandfather and I didn't ever hear from Siri about a grandfather, in her own life experience. And it involves Sigur, who was of course Siri in her own life, but Sigur in my story, is talking to her grandfather at the beginning of the film about wanting to go away. And he gives her a coat, which he sort of implies is a magical coat, or rather in the context of a fairy story would be a magical coat. And we've tried to sort of suggest in the way it's shot that that in fact is what it is. Yeah. And Siri never takes it off. Sigurd never takes it off in the course of the film, except right at the end of the story. And it's almost like her protective coat of armour, her set of wings, which is protecting her until she's ready to go. Yeah. Um, and Siri said she cried like a baby all the way through the shooting of the scene. And I didn't hear her because she was doing it quietly and I was focused on the actors. And I realised that you can still be surprised by your own story if it comes through, you know, some other filter, if it bounces off a wall and comes back to you through a mirror. And we asked Siri to play one of the roles. She plays the mother of Nikki, who is the lover in the film. And she just has a scene, but she does it beautifully. It's very poignant for her to play this character who was a real figure in her own life, with whom she had quite a bad relationship. So again, Siri got herself folded back into the story as an actor, as someone who was sitting on the side as a member of the audience watching it for the first time. So I think it were Siri here today, she would say it's a very different story in the way it's sort of come out, but there are many aspects of it. And the basic plot line is fairly similar, but the essential part of the story about wanting to leave home, the difficulty of doing so, and the price you have to pay for it, I think, resonates i hope with siri but also with everybody who will come to see it it's a serious story but it's it's taken on new new folds and and, and hopefully it can relate to lots of people in the, in that struggle 
to, to yes. get out leave <laughs> exactly I, I think i think we're all still trying to do it and you know we yeah have, we've tested the audience with uh tested the film on different audiences and we've had people in their 80s burst into tears and you know halfway through and keep crying till the end and it's not that sort of movie but from their civilization you know from their background this couple came from for example part of the audience came from pakistan just happened to be coming by the editing studio and were friends of one of the producers and leaving an Islamic community to sort of find a place, or not leaving it, but trying to readapt to fit into the modern world was infinitely painful for them, but mm. it was a journey worth the making. And, you know, I, I think that we also expect it to resonate very strongly with young women aged 16 to 24, you know, it's one of the demographics that distributors like you to identify. But in fact, we found that young men of the same age identified with it as strongly than women in their later life who had had children, who were now going through it maybe a second time with their own children or a third time with grandchildren also related to it very strongly. So I think in trying to tell a, like a children's book type story, we wanted something that would be simple, but which, but which gave everybody the opportunity in a way to relate to it. Because... In the end, I think all human stories unite us in an understanding of what it is to be alive and the struggles we all face and the challenges that are there every day. But I, I, the end of the film, I think, suggests that the struggle is worth it and that it's through that that you, you know, go on and find your new life. And Siri is still living in, uh, in California um, and still making a life for herself and is an artist so in that sense you know her her dream did come true yeah fabulous and so i'm actually it's been wonderful to chat to you and to hear the the, the journey that this film has become um, and and also the story it tells um where and when can people see it and enjoy it well actually we're doing a initially a q a tour which basically means that the film will be screened uh, and then i and some of the other filmmakers will be present to answer questions about it you know, whether it be about independent films or the making of this film or how they could get into filmmaking or you know whatever they like really and the, the, each question session is moderated by someone who uh, kind of you know guides everybody to get a chance to ask these questions um but each screening starts at six in the evening, ends at 8.30, and we have one in Chelmsford on the 31st of August. Uh, we have one in Newcastle on the 18th. We have one in Manchester on the 24th, in Liverpool on the 26th, and then we go into other places like Horsham and Esher, and I think in due course Leeds. We have a couple in London, uh, one in Chelsea, Everyman Cinema on the 6th, uh, King's Cross, Everyman on the 8th, and basically most of these are everyman cinemas and they can be found if you put in Iceland is best Q&A tour you'll get some opportunity there to book a ticket um, and come along and join in the Q&A session then in due course there will be a, a digital release um, which will probably be the beginning of next year January um, and uh, the Iceland is best website will have details of that there will probably be publicity and also we have a certain amount of press coverage in some of the national publications. And, uh, so there will be a way of keeping track of that. As for a cinema release, we're still hoping that there will be a, a limited run for the film on the big screen. It will depend really upon how the cinema industry, how the exhibitors recover from COVID, uh, because of course it's hit everybody very hard and the film industry particularly hard. And people yeah. haven't quite yet got back into habit going back to cinemas, but. You know, I myself went back three times the first two weeks after cinemas opened and loved the experience. So I'm hoping that people will come back with perhaps the added incentive of you know, being able to meet the filmmakers. So Q and A too, and what a film to see on a big screen with a, a big dramatic yes. backdrop. Exactly. I mean, even if it's in a you know a, a sort of a, a not enormous screen, um, you know, there are some screens elsewhere that will be bigger, but it's still, I think lovely to see a film on something that's bigger than your average TV screen. So, um, uh, and the sound of course is, 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 is one of the things that we work very hard on. And, you know, we have a very nice Icelandic pop track to it too as well. We have some Icelandic bands playing. We have some American indie bands. We have some, 
Scottish UK bands, we have some Swedish ba uh, bands playing and they all add to the sort of magic of the story. So I, I hope that people will get the full benefit of that if they were to come along to the screening. So yes, in terms of where you are, um, Chelmsford, the 31st of August, it'd be lovely to see people if, if they could uh, come and join us. Come and see it, come and say hello. Fantastic. Um, you're doing screenings in Iceland as well? Um, we've actually distributed the film to Iceland and they've uh, bought it. But again, they were shut and then open and shut again and then yeah. finally open. And American films are vying with us for the slots. There aren't that many um, cinemas in Iceland. And initially we had an arrangement to distribute to four cinemas in Iceland. And I think there are about six or eight in total. But we're still waiting and maybe there will be a release in September for confirmation of that. And we may well have mm. some kind of premiere there. And it would be lovely to see how they react to the film. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Max, it looks fantastic. I can't wait to see it. And uh, uh, thanks so much for chatting to us. I wish you all the best. Can't wait to see uh, your next film when it comes. Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to being able to offer it to you. I hope in the same kind of spirit of adventure as we uh, and it's perhaps encapsulating this movie. So thank you very much, Stuart. We'll speak soon. Bye-bye. A huge thanks to Max Newsom for taking the time to chat to us about his new film, Iceland is Best, and to Mikey Porter for putting us in touch. So interested to hear about all the sorts of struggles that go on behind the scenes to get a film like this made. I mean, from battling unearthly weather conditions and fundraising whilst filming to the little fairy tale touches that give the filmmaking process like a whole life of its own now you'll find the trailer in all the usual places there's a link on the phoenix fm website and iceland is best tells the story of Siga, a 17 year old girl trying to leave home in iceland and make her way to california uh, filmed on location in Iceland naturally it looks absolutely stunning and if you want to see it then you can catch it at selected cinemas uh, in particular at the Everyman Cinema in Chelmsford on Tuesday the 31st of August 6pm and the screening is followed by a live Q&A with writer and director Max Newsom, director of photography and producer Dan Kuro Shinmar and producer Will Randall Coth. Oh, and the Q&A will be hosted by some bloke called Stuart Pink. So I will see you there. For tickets, click the link on the Phoenix FM website. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed the interview, then please share it. Uh, if you didn't enjoy it, then share it anyway. <laughs> for more guest interviews like this or to get the next one delivered directly to your device, subscribe to the Now You're Talking podcast. You'll find it wherever you get your podcasts from and the whole thing has become a huge library featuring well over 150 guest interviews from music, film, comedy icons to community heroes local legends stars of the future and just about everybody in between a treasure trove of life's stories from all sorts of incredible people so for more interviews podcasts videos poems and books everything i do is available at stuartpink.com 